We've been touring through the Bible in order to gain a better understanding of our God, His plan for history, His plan of redemption, and how all these Bible stories many of us have heard growing up fit together, that they're not isolated stories, but they're part of a grand story, and that if you don't understand God's grand story, then our individual stories don't make sense. You can't rip our individual story out of the context of God's story. And so we find ourselves in the book of Jonah this morning, interestingly enough. Next week we'll, we'll hear a little bit about the prophet Elijah, and then Elisha, our publishing company, Answers in Genesis, made a editorial mistake, putting Jonah before Elijah and Elisha. But I wanted to stick with the order. I actually called the company because I thought, hey, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a reason we should preach Jonah before Elijah and Elisha. And they called back. I'm thankful they called back. I talked to someone on the curriculum committee. His name was Roger, very lovely man. And I said, so what? Why Jonah before Elijah and Elisha? I'm dying to know. And he said, so am I. (laughs) I'm like, oh. He's like, yep, just, just an editing error. It happens. So, the, the kingdom was divided. We saw that last week because of Solomon's sin. His uh, improper love of women led him to appease his many wives by building temples to false gods all around Israel. And Israel became a divided kingdom divided in their worship. You can't worship the true God and worship idols simultaneously. You can't obey God and obey the world simultaneously. And so long before the kingdom was physically divided, it was already spiritually divided. And isn't that the way with our own hearts? Long before you see the outward manifestations, the sin, something's going on in the heart. The kingdom divides around 975, and Jonah preaches in 800, so we just skipped 175 years. Later today, after church, if you're out in the main hallway, maybe picking up your kids from Sunday school, there's a new poster on one of the bulletin boards right right near the kitchen, and it's got a timeline of Israel's history, and it's very helpful to see the timeline, when the kingdom divides, who the kings were in each kingdom, and which prophets were prophesying during that time period. Your prophets are not in chronological order in your Bible. Like, that was such an eye-opener for me when somebody finally told me that. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So the Bible has been chronological up till now, for the most part, and now those minor prophets aren't necessarily in chronological order. I want to point out to you that God has given us an illustration in the kings of Israel. Before we get into the divided kingdom and all the different kings, He's given us three kings that we've really focused in on. It sounds like a Christmas sermon, right? Um, We had King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. King Saul being a man after man's own heart. 
King Saul cared about his own glory. And that led to disobedience. And not a lot of momentum building in Israel's history under Saul's reign. And then we got the contrast of David, a a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man, by no means. Gross failure, adultery and murder. And yet, a man broken over his sin and not making excuses for his sin and crying out for God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Followed by Solomon, now a man with a divided heart. We saw many aspects of Solomon's heart focused on God and wanting God's wisdom and wanting to exalt God, and he built this beautiful temple for the worship of God. And much of what Solomon has written is there for our edification and will draw us close to God. And yet we also saw in his life a divided heart. And if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll hear that divided heart come out. One paragraph he's saying things we should do and follow and agree with. And the next paragraph he's talking like an unbeliever, a worldly unbeliever. And we said that in Solomon we could see our own heart. Even those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ and God's given us a new heart, a regenerate heart, a heart that wants to obey God, there is still residual sin nature that tears us in two different directions. And that in Christ, though we're justified fully, God declares us righteous when we put our faith in Christ, this process of sanctification now will continue until we get to glory. This process of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Retraining our mind to think God's thoughts after Him instead of thinking our thoughts first and then trying to make God's thoughts conform to ours. As we continue into Israel's history and look at the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom will now become a picture for us of what a divided heart looks like. The northern kingdom will never really have a godly king at its helm. The southern kingdom will waffle between good kings and bad kings. And the Bible is really black and white about it. It it uses this language. And -and so-and-so became king, and he did what was right in the sight of God. Or so-and-so became king, and he did what was evil in the sight of God. There's no hemming and hawing. That is the measuring stick. Since Jonah uh, comes in this order in our curriculum, we'll preach Jonah today, but you'll have to know that 175 years has passed of good kings and bad kings. Jonah was a prophet. I know that's a song from the Veggie Tales. I almost can't help singing. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. When you think prophet, don't only think somebody who predicts the future. That isn't the only job prophets had. 
fact, there's another poster out in the hallway that describes the role of a prophet. Prophets spoke and wrote the word of God. Prophets led the people of God. Remember, before Saul was anointed king, Samuel was really the leader of the fledgling nation. Because God is the ultimate king. And so a prophet speaks the words of our true king to us. When God decided in his sovereignty to give Israel human kings, the prophet's job was to anoint the next king. Prophets performed miracles to substantiate that they are true prophets of God and to display God's glory. They could interpret dreams. Mostly, though, we're going to see at this section of Israel's history that prophets would warn of coming judgment, call the people to repentance, predict future judgment, and then announce hope and restoration. And that's kind of the cycle you see in a lot of the prophets. You're in sin. You need to repent. You're probably not going to. God's going to bring judgment. But God is a God of mercy and a God who keeps His word and He has an everlasting covenant with Israel. And so there was a future hope of restoration. As new covenant believers, we have those same prophecies being prophesied to us. Sin brings judgment. Repent, turn from sin, turn to Christ. There's a, a coming judgment, a day of the Lord, where we'll have to stand before God. There will be a time of great tribulation on this earth, but the prophets also tell us there will be a time of restoration and renewal, where God will make all things right. Finally, the Old Testament prophets prepared the way for the Messiah. Whether directly or indirectly, we find out later in the New Testament some of the prophecies that seem to be prophesying about a certain event, and they were, in God's sovereignty, it turns out they were also prophesying about a future event. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So, who was Jonah? A prophet to the ten northern tribes. I explained this last week, but I'll keep explaining this because it's, it's so confusing. The northern kingdom was named Israel. Before the kingdom was, was divided, the kingdom was called Israel. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah. Jonah was a prophet to the ten northern tribes around 800 to 750 B.C., just prior to Amos. As I already noted, our Sunday school curriculum has things a little out of order. Lots been going on in the last 175 years, and it really hasn't been good, if you know the stories of Elijah and Elisha. But God sends Jonah to preach to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Probably the largest city in the known world at the time. 
And in fact, Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet sent directly to preach to a foreign nation. I doubt Jonah knew when he was called as a prophet that that was going to be his assignment eventually. We were saying during first service how when we come to Christ, we go through that initial period of we're just so in awe of God and so thankful for our salvation and so full of energy and motivation and encouragement that we tell God, use me any way you want, send me anywhere. And I'm sure Jonah had a similar experience until God said, I'm sending you to Nineveh. Anywhere but Nineveh, God. Anywhere but Nineveh. Nineveh was known for its gross immorality and extreme cruelty. Stories of filleting their enemies alive and leaving them impaled on stakes all over the landscape as a message to anyone who would mess with Assyria. This is what happens. They were idolaters. They worshipped the fish god, the god they thought was half man, half fish. We know that eventually God would use Assyria to punish the northern kingdom. So some commentators have thought perhaps one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach repentance was that they might actually repent and then God would use them to destroy the northern kingdom. Perhaps. We have no official record of Jonah believing that. We also know that when the Assyrians do come in and take the northern kingdom captive, God stops them at the border of the southern kingdom and defeats them in a miraculous way. They have the numbers and they're ready to take Jerusalem and God supernaturally delivers Jerusalem, reminding us that even though God may let a pagan nation be powerful for a time, it's not because He's blessing them. He may be using that nation as His rod of judgment on those He loves. When Assyria settled into the northern kingdom and took captives away, they began to intermarry and interbreed with the Jewish women. And later, those half-breeds became known as Sumerians or Samaritans. And why Jews hated the Samaritans so much. They were half-Jews and half-Assyrians of all people idolaters, wicked, cruel. Let's start reading from Jonah. Jonah 1.1, 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Notice the language. Arise, their wickedness has come up. Gird up your loins, Jonah. Arise, 
This is what I've called you for. This is what I've made you for. This is why I've gifted you as a speaker to speak on behalf of the Most High. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This language is very intentional. God says, rise up, exalt my name. And Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord and went down, down, down. Feeling down today, beloved? Perhaps it's because you've fled unknowingly from the presence of the Lord. You'll never find extended happiness and satisfaction away from the presence of the Lord. Perhaps He's given you some task and you've been disobedient. You're running from God's commands. In the same way God told Cain, Why the long face, Cain? Why are you down? Do you not know that if you do what is right, it will go well with you? Now, as a prophet of God, he should have understood you can't flee from the presence of God. He's omnipresent. What the text is telling us is that they believed that the presence of the Lord was especially thick in Jerusalem, in the temple, where the Shekinah glory of God was concentrated. And so he was getting as far away from Jerusalem as he possibly could. Not just fleeing Nineveh, but fleeing the presence of God. Biblically, everything is down in, in uh, relation to the temple. Sometimes when you're reading in your Bible that somebody went down from the temple, they end up in Galilee, and you're like, wait a minute, that's up on the map. No, that's the high point of worship to the Jew. Everywhere else is down. Everywhere from the presence of the Lord is down. I get that way about Tehachapi sometimes. I say, oh, we're going down to Stockton to visit my parents. So he's on this ship and this great storm comes. God brings a great storm. And it's put the entire ship and crew in danger. Doesn't our sin affect everyone, not just us? And yet when we're mired in sin, we could care less about how it affects the other people around us. That is the essence of sin. I only care about myself. And so the crew casts lots to find out who's responsible. Their theology is, is this. God is in control of the weather. God's unhappy with somebody on this boat. Who is it? So they draw lots, they cast lots, the lot falls on Jonah. And they say, who are you? And why have you done this to us? And he says, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
These were worshipers of some sea god. So Jonah reveals himself as a prophet of the one true God, unintentionally preaching to these pagans. Here's God using a prophet, and the prophet doesn't even realize he's being used of God. He says, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. He uses Yahweh, the covenant name of God. You know, the, the Lord God of heaven who made the sea. Yeah, your, your false God lives in the sea. My God made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Notice how many times God wants us to hear fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Fleeing from the will of God. Fleeing from obeying God. Ironically, Jonah says, I fear the Lord God. And yet we see no fear of the Lord in his actions. Fear of the Lord is afraid of what God will do to you if you're disobedient, certainly. But fear of the Lord, we also know, means respect and love for God such that you would trust Him and gladly walk in His ways. We see neither of these things from Jonah. And so Jonah tells them, in order to spare you, throw me overboard. Notice he doesn't say, turn the ship around and take me to Nineveh. He's still not wanting to obey the Lord. He'd rather drown in the sea. But God will have his way. So they throw him overboard. They ask God to forgive them. They say, may this man's blood not be on our hands. And possibly we have a true conversion here. These men may have become believers in the one true God It says, then the men feared the Lord, and and there's that covenant name, Yahweh, greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Maybe they vowed to abandon their false gods who couldn't save them in the storm. Perhaps we'll meet them in heaven. That would be great to meet the sailors on the ship to Tarshish. Tell us the story. So chapter 1, we saw a outwardly disobedient prophet. And in chapter 2, we're going to see an outwardly repentant prophet. God brings a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Notice it's a fish and not a whale. There is a word for whale. In the original, this is fish, a great fish. And he swallowed up and he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. Again, using that covenant name for God. Not just any God, the only God who saves, the God whom Jonah has relationship with. And he answered me, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol and you heard my voice. Sheol is euphemistic Sometimes for hell, sometimes for the grave, or sometimes just for a situation in life in which you find yourself where you're desperate and there's no way out on your own. And so certainly, spiritually, 
apart from God, we find ourselves in Sheol, in danger, desperate, at the end of our rope. How's Jonah going to get out of the fish on his own? And if he does, how is he going to survive in the ocean? These are desperate times, and spiritually, all of us outside of Christ are in desperate times. I don't care how good you think you are, how accomplished you are, how self-sufficient you fancy yourself, and this is Tehachapi, the land of the self-sufficient. We are all Jonah's desperate, drowning in the belly of the fish, and we have nothing left to do but cry out. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. Amen? And God has mercy on Jonah. In fact, part of Jonah's prayer, and I'm quoting from the New King James, and a lot of this um, prayer is in Aramaic. There's a few places in our Bible where Aramaic is the language. And so it's difficult to translate, and you'll notice uh, if you're sitting next to someone with a different translation, lots of different words. And so like any good preacher, I cherry-picked the translation I like the best. Of course. The New King James reads, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. And I think that really captures the sense here. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy because an idol can't give you mercy. It can't do anything for you. It's worthless. It's powerless. Oh, our our idols have a certain power over us. It's just we're giving the idol that power over us to keep us in bondage, thinking this idol will save me, deliver me, satisfy me, make me happy, make me popular, make me important, make me glorified. But idols have no power. And so those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I love that. What's he going to sacrifice with in a fish? How are you going to do a burnt offering? He says, I'll give my sacrifice of praise. We gave a sacrifice this morning as we sang together. And I will pay what I have vowed. With what money? You're in a fish. He's talking about at one point in his life, certainly when God called him, he said, you are my God, whatever you command me to do. And he hasn't. And he's saying, give me another chance, God, and I will pay my vow. Salvation is of the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. You like that? Vomited or spit out. The original reads, That's about what it sounded like. Even a fish can't stand the taste of a self-righteous prophet. Yuck. Chapter 3. So we saw the outwardly disobedient prophet, the 
outwardly repentant prophet. I mean, what else are you going to be when you're inside the belly of a fish? We don't know, though, if, if what was truly going on in his heart yet. It takes a little time, right? When somebody comes to the Lord, we're excited for them, and we're praying for them, and we're encouraging them, and we want to see signs of true repentance, but you don't put them in the lead in a ministry right away. You've got to wait. We baptized quite a few people last Sunday. It was just encouraging and God-glorifying. But there was some time between when they put their faith in Jesus and that baptism and make sure that is an authentic profession of faith. And what do we look for? Signs of repentance. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. He must have been quite a sight. Back near the early 1900s, there's a story of a man being swallowed by a fish. Spent some time in there. When they finally pulled him out, his skin was partially bleached by the digestive juices of the fish. So I don't know if God supernaturally protected that, protected Jonah from that happening to him, or if he was walking through Nineveh, stark white. Regardless, he would have been noticed, preaching repentance in a city full of pagan idolatry, and preaching with boldness. And the city was so great, meaning so large, that it was a three-day walk from one side of the city to the other. We estimate that it was perhaps 600,000 inhabitants. 600,000 inhabitants. In Jonah 3.10, it reads, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, the, the king of Nineveh called for a national repentance. And everyone repented in dust and ashes and sackcloth. When God saw their deeds, remember what we said, is it, is it an authentic repentance? Then deeds will follow. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and so he did not do it. And this should be the end of the story with great celebration. I mean, if your job's a prophet and 600,000 people repent, what could be better? Give God the glory. Let's go to the next city, God. And yet, in chapter 4, we see an inwardly disobedient prophet. Inwardly Disobedient. He obeyed on the outside, but he wasn't obeying on the inside. He learned his lesson with the fish, but it doesn't mean his heart had changed. You know, you have children in your home who are the outwardly obedient ones. It's hard to know what exactly is going on on the inside. They're just smart enough to know, I don't want what big brother or big sister got. 
At least with the outwardly disobedient ones, you know what you're dealing with. Listen to this. After this great revival, maybe the greatest revival recorded in history in one place at one time. And some commentators say, well, maybe it wasn't a true revival and they all went back to their ways. We don't know. I, I hope to see 600,000 people in heaven from, from Nineveh telling the tale of God's greatness. It's, it's about 80 years later that Assyria would, would come in to the northern kingdom. So i got to believe many that repented that day, it was a true repentance. But this repentance, this revival, displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is very strong language. Displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was seething mad that God would do this. He became angry. Why do people become angry? Because you think you deserve something and you don't get it. I want something really bad and I don't get it. Or injustice has been done. That's not fair. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I knew this was going to happen. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He's quoting God's own words back to God. This is how God revealed himself to Moses. You can hear the sarcasm dripping off of his voice. I know you're a merciful God. Now, if somebody thought they themselves were the recipient of great mercy, would they talk this way? Would they? I know many of you who have quite a testimony of God's grace in your life. Really, if you know the Lord, you should all have a great testimony of God's grace in your life. None of this, well, I know I'm a sinner, but not like Bill was. No, compared to God's glory perfection, we're all wretched. But Jonah sounds like the kind of man who didn't think he was really that wretched. I know you're a God of mercy. I still don't think it's fair, though. Letting these pagans, these immoral idolaters off the hook like that. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to be dead than have to sit here and see 600,000 people be spared. That I hate with what he thought was a righteous hatred. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Some translations say, Do you have a good reason for being angry? I like, Is it right for you to be angry? Because this takes me all the way back to Genesis 3. In my mind. God is God. He is sovereign. He is the source of right and good, everything he does is good, everything he says he's good because he's good. 
It's not that he does something good and then a higher judge says, oh, that was good. It's good because God did it. It's good because God said it, because God is good. He is the source of good. And yet man in his fallenness sits in judgment over God and decides what he thinks is good and isn't good. That's how Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if, if you seek good and evil apart from God and try to define it on your own terms, you shall surely die. And they said, no, we won't. We'll, we'll live. And we'll be like God. And we'll know good and evil. So the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? He knows he's angry at God. Is it right for you to judge what I have done? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And he built a little shelter over himself and had himself a little pity party and sat up there on his high horse and decided he would judge God a little bit longer. So the Lord God decided to supernaturally supply an object lesson for Jonah. And he appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. It's hot out there. It's the desert. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but I don't see any thanksgiving and praise to God. It's more like, a, oh yeah, I deserve this. I'm a good person. I'm an, I'm an obedient person. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. They call those Scirocco winds. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. He's pouting again. This is the adult way of saying this isn't fair. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow. A complete gift from God, which came up overnight, and perished overnight. Nothing gained, nothing lost. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? That's euphemistic for children. Very young children. 120,000 very young children. And he emphasizes the children. They're not even to the age of accountability and culpability. They're just kids. You want me to slaughter them all right here. You had more compassion for a stupid plant that you didn't even plant than for all these people, as well as animals, to boot. What is going on in Jonah's heart? Of course Jonah disobeyed God. The question is, why did he disobey God? That's the point of the sermon this morning. Of course, beloved 
we disobey God. But until you're willing to ask God to show you why you disobey, you will never get to the root of your sin. And I know we're afraid to ask why, because when we find out, we are going to be ugly. Ugly. Look at the ugliness. You see the ugliness. Jonah wanting 600,000 people to, to perish, but thinking he himself deserves God's forgiveness. Can't understand mercy and grace in his own life, so he's not willing to extend it to others. The self-righteousness reeks. He thought the fish reeked. This is what reeks. Here's a prophet who's been called to speak on behalf of God. The problem is he doesn't have the heart of God. How can you speak for God if you don't have his heart? How can you be excited about repentance if you're not excited about your own salvation? All he sees is immoral people. Filthy, immoral idolaters. He doesn't see people made in God's image. Beloved, we must look at the root of our sin if we are going to conquer sin. God's given us the power to conquer sin. But in our sanctification, in a way that's mysterious, we partner with God. He does all the work on our justification and all the work on our glorification, but in this in-between time, we are partnering with Him, and He calls us to look at the root of our sin. Yes, Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh. Why wouldn't he go to Nineveh? He says so, because I knew you'd forgive him. I didn't want to see it happen. I certainly didn't want to be the vehicle which you used to make it happen. I mean, if you're going to do it, go do it. But I don't want to be part of it. That's ugly. And yet, listen to this, it's counterintuitive. But the more we're willing to look at the ugly root of our own sin, the more beautiful God's salvation becomes. If you don't think you're that wretched, then grace isn't that amazing. If you're just a little messed up and you disobey once in a while, then the cross is overkill. God coming down and shedding his blood for somebody who makes an oops every once in a while? I mean, come on, let's be honest. At best, in your home life, when you sin, at best, your family hears, hey, we're all human. Well, I'm, I got angry, but it's because all of you were really exasperating me. I would have got it right if I had more information. <laughs> All these excuses. This isn't a repentant heart. This is an embarrassed heart. A prideful heart. This may be what's missing from your sanctification, beloved. The, the trust enough in God's love for you that you can actually be honest with yourself before God and your friends and family, of what's really going on in your heart. 
Until you get there, we're just playing church. But if we want to be people who are so overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy that we can't help but proclaim it to the world, then we're going to have to get serious about what's at the root of our sin. It's really that ugly. I thank God that He doesn't expose to us just how ugly it really is. I'm thankful that He just exposes it a little bit at a time. Where, where is Jonah in the Gospel? Well, Jesus points to the book of Jonah in the New Testament. By the way, this is no allegory. This literally happened. Jonah's an actual man. He was actually swallowed by a fish. It's a miracle. Yes, I told you the story about another man who was swallowed by a fish, but we don't need those stories to trust our Bible. Because if you're going to go down that path, beloved, trust me, you're going to get to a story in the Bible that has no modern-day analogy. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Of course, he's been doing all kinds of signs and miracles up to this point, but I guess they weren't good enough for them. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights is the Hebrew euphemistic way of saying any part of three days. You don't have to sit here and try to figure out how to get a third night in the grave for Jesus. He was in the grave part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday. Very common in Hebrew parlance to say that's three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. These Gentiles had a Jewish prophet come to them, and they repented. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Your Messiah is here, and you won't repent. And if you need a sign, more than a resurrected Savior... If you won't believe that, then you won't believe anything. And we go to evangelize people and they don't want to hear about our resurrected Jesus. They want some other kind of evidence. That's the evidence. That's the gospel. The problem here is moralism. It's a problem with Jonah. He thought he was a good person and thought when he disobeyed God... That was just one breaking of the law. But the rest of Jonah was just fine. Jonah didn't understand that he had a bigger problem than moral, being immoral. He, he was, something was wrong with his heart. If you can't get excited about God saving 600,000 people, something's wrong. How could you hate people that much? Yes, they were wicked people. Every once in a while, after one of these 
shootings or ISIS attacks. A Christian from our own community will go on Facebook and say, I wish God would just nuke them all. It just makes you cringe. And cringe for two reasons. One, because your heart has said that too. And for the second reason, but you're not supposed to say it out loud. Well, at least he got it out there. And until we can admit that's what's on the inside, we have no hope of God fixing that attitude. Do you have that attitude about Muslims, North Koreans, your next door neighbor, spouse? You need to look at the cross and remind yourself again that you are a wretch, are a wretch. And God gave you eyes to see and gave you a new heart. And where would your life be apart from God's grace? And if God is most excited when one sinner repents than anything else, then that's what we should be excited about. Jesus said, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. This is after the Jonah preaching. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. This isn't a teaching about demon possession. It's a teaching about what happens when you don't clean the inside of the heart through faith and repentance in Christ. You clean up your act a little, but seven worse habits or sins will come flooding in eventually. The problem with moralism, Jesus told the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, clean on the inside, filled with dead men's bones on the... Sorry, white on the outside, filled with dead men's bones on the... Nothing alive on the inside. You're just going to need another coat of paint. Jonah rightfully hated immorality and idolatry, as we all should. We are not preaching easy beliefism from the pulpit. We are not preaching antinomianism, anti-law. Go ahead, God is gracious, do whatever you want. We are not preaching that this morning. We should detest sin and immorality and idolatry in all of its forms, in all of its places, starting with the chief of sinners, me, you. People's Exhibit A. You don't have to look any further than yourself. But what Jonah doesn't understand is how ugly his own self-righteousness and hatred for other people is. That's, that's the uglier sin to God. Yes, the immorality and the cruelty and the pagan idolatry is ugly to God. But again and again in God's Word, what offends God more than anything else is a self-righteous heart. Robbing God of His glory, His salvific glory, His merciful mercy and His loving kindness. He's ready to shed on people who recognize their need for a Savior. You know what stinks most to God 
is a self-righteous sinner who thinks he doesn't need salvation and gets himself to the place that he doesn't even want to see other people saved. I don't want them in the family of God. When Jesus was asked why he hangs out with sinners, he told three stories. One about a woman excited when she found a lost coin. A second story, he was about a shepherd excited when he found his one lost sheep. And then tells the story of the prodigal son, which you know so well. Jonah's the older brother. I stayed at home. I was mostly obedient compared to the disobedient younger brother. And no, I'm not going into that party. I am not happy about you forgiving. And the father said, this is my son, and he was lost, and now he's found. Come in, celebrate with me. This is what makes God excited. Nathan, the associate pastor, not the prophet, pointed out to me that the story of Jonah ends just like the prodigal son. What does the older brother do? We don't know. It just ends. Leaves us hanging. What did Jonah do? Was it right for you to be angry? Are you going to be excited? Are you going to go into Nineveh and have a party with these people and start discipling? We don't know. And I think the stories leave it hanging so we can see ourselves in Jonah, in the older brother, and see our own self-righteousness. And how are you going to write the end of your story this morning? You're going to repent of that attitude? Repent of your self-righteousness? Be excited that God saved you? Be excited that God is saving other sinners? Or are you going to sit outside and sulk and sit in judgment over God? We know actually how the story of the prodigal son ended. As John MacArthur teaches in his book, The Tale of Two Brothers. Since the older brother was the Pharisees and the scribes, he says the older brother, so ashamed of his father, picked up a piece of wood and bludgeoned the father to death. They hung Jesus on the cross. Couldn't couldn't take a merciful Savior. Didn't want to see beauty and perfection in front of them because it just highlighted their own ugliness. Not sure how Jonah ends, but how will your story end? I'll let you work that out with God today. Or perhaps you want to talk to me or one of the elders. We'll help you work that story out so it has a happy ending, a God-glorifying ending. Father God, convict us by your word. Help us to see where we're like Jonah. Or maybe we're like the Ninevites. Either way, we need to repent and cry out for salvation. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, you're dismissed.